Well, good morning. It is always a blessing to share with you from God's Word, and today is certainly one of those days. It's a day for a timely message. I mean, in light of all that is going on in our world, my plan over the next two Sundays is to speak to you about, honestly, what is on everyone's mind, and that's Israel. I've entitled the two-part series, as you can see, Israelology, Israelology, where we'll be informed by Scripture as it relates to Israel, Israelology. And if you're familiar with any uh, volume of systematic theology, you know that there are often, they are often categorized into various ologies or uh, studies. So you have theology is the study of God, bibliology, the study of the Bible, Anthropology, the study of mankind. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, and on and on and on. And if we could add another category, let's, let's just call it Israelology. That is to say, when it comes to our understanding of progressive revelation, God's purposes, is his plans, past, present, and times, If we don't get Israel right, we get it all wrong. We really do. If we don't get Israel right, we get it all wrong. This is much like the um, creation account. If you mess with Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you mess with much of Scripture. To not accept that the entire universe was created in six 24-hour days, we can see it is crystal clear from the text that evening and morning were the first day. Uh, Evening and morning were the second day. Daylight and dark, daylight and dark. That's the 24-hour period. That is the only way to correctly interpret uh, Scripture. But some want to turn it into ages. But there's nothing in there that does that. There's nothing in the text that really allows uh, for that. And I intend to make a similar uh, argument today. Uh, If you mess with Israel... Then you mess with much scripture. How much? About 70%. 70% of scripture is the story of Israel from start to finish. So a wrong understanding of Israel unravels all kinds of key doctrines. It gets right, right to the gospel, straight to the gospel. Without a, a literal, uh, grammatical, historical, biblical understanding of Israel, then God's sovereignty is in play. Uh, as is his character and the nature of his promises. I mean, does he, will he keep all his promises? And what about Israel? Especially beginning in Genesis 12. If you would turn, if you please turn there in your Bibles, uh, Genesis 12. We'll get there shortly. Genesis 12. And my aim, my prayer, is that this study of Israel will serve us in understanding the times that we're living in. I know you would agree, yes, that these are critically important times that we are living in. The world is not only turning, it is changing. And so biblically speaking, we'll look at uh, today Israel's past and present times. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to examine Israel's future, or uh, what we would call end times, to be instructed on what we can expect to happen next on God's timetable. But be assured, believer, God is moving everything sovereignly to his own purposed 
and glorious end. And he's revealed much of it to us in his word. And we're going to begin first by looking at Israel's past. Let's look at Israel's past. Okay. (laughs) So let's look at Israel's past. We're going to look at the past and present today. And the very first thing we see as it relates to the past beginnings, the birth of Israel, is the election of Israel. The election of Israel. Isaiah mentions this often. For example, in 45.4, he says, Israel, mine elect. In 65.9, he says, mine elect shall inherit it, the promises of God. In 65.22, really the whole chapter is about this. Verse 22, he says, my elect shall enjoy the work of their hands. It is then a matter of sovereign election. Israel is God's elect from before time. God chose Israel. And we see that it's a distinct entity, a nation. A nation where God created, creator God elected one nation as his own. You know this verse. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And that's Second Chronicles 7.14, right? And God's speaking of his elect nation, Israel. He says, my people, their land. Now, election of a distinct entity, in this case, the nation of Israel, does not allow any room for uh, status debates as it relates to equality, uh, fairness, opinions, because he's God. He is God. He created the earth, and he chose Isaac over Ishmael. God loved Jacob, right, whom he later renamed Israel, and he hated Esau. These are the facts. It is God's prerogative, not ours. These choices are his from before really time began. Also, it's important for us to make the distinction here as it relates to national election that this does not mean that every single person in the nation for all of time is to be saved. The Lord never promised to save all ethnic Israelites who have ever lived And someone may say, but what about Romans 11.26 where it states that um, all Israel will be saved? And this is really for next Sunday as we'll look at future Israel. But it's the end times that this text, chapter 11, is referring to. But it's a day when after two-thirds of unbelieving Israel has been purged in the time of the tribulation, then and only then does Isaiah 53 collectively become their prayer. Meaning, the remaining remnant will look upon the one whom they've pierced. They will repent and they will believe. That is national Israel, Zechariah 12.10. God will sovereignly save the nation he has elected, Israel. And this is going to encompass 12,000 from every tribe. They don't know their tribes now. God knows them. But there'll be 144,000 Jews that God will elect as evangelists to the world. Again, much more on that next Sunday. 
And so it is the national election of Israel that is the basis of Israel's status as God's chosen people. God's chosen people. Status. And we'll see all throughout history that the world has been blessed as a result of the Jewish people. Just as an example, I was looking at this this week. Uh, 22% of the Nobel Prize winners are Jewish. 22%. And you know, Jews make up only 0.2% of the world's population. And I found that interesting. So their share of winners is 100 times their percentage of the world's population. That says something. They have been recognized, awarded uh, all six categories for their contributions, for their blessings to humanity. Uh, chemistry, economics, literature, peace, physics, and medicine. But that status, that status has not only brought blessings to Gentile nations, as you know, it has also resulted in a history of hatred too, including Satan's attempt to thwart the restoration of Israel with the Nazi Holocaust. There was a death of six million Jews. Six million Jews and 1.5 million children included in that. And you know, the Bible is true. And every time we mention Israel, we are in a sense making an uh, evidential argument for it. We are making the case that the Bible is true. And the Bible is wonderfully immense and Israel is mentioned all throughout it in the old and in the new. So Israel, it was chosen by God to be the land of promise for his people. Now this is jumping ahead a bit. Think of the Jews' restoration out of dispersion on May 14, 1948, and how significant it was to have the infant state of Israel, the infant state of Israel recognized by the United Nations. It was a vote that brought with it diplomatic recognition and the establishment of the state of Israel itself. Yet there are popular biblical scholars who completely miss this. I'm going to name a name here. Take, for example, John Stott. I appreciate John Stott. He passed away, I think, 10, 12 years ago and had written extensively, uh, at least uh, one of the books I have, I really appreciate on 1 Corinthians and on Christian leadership. Really solid material. So he's in Switzerland at a conference and a student stands up and asks him this question. What is the significance of Israel's return to the land today? And his answer is it has absolutely no significance at all. I don't know how you can say such a thing. Knowing passages like Genesis 12 exist in my Bible, my follow-up to a question like that, I mean, honorably, but my, my question would be, sir, are you reading your Bible? Every Christian needs to be reading their Bible for themselves. It, it is where we need to be focusing our attention and affections. Look with me at Genesis 12. At Genesis 12, as we note the promises to Israel, the promises to Israel. Simply put, God made covenants. He made promises to a people, a people that came out of the loins of Abraham, that came through the patriarchs, known as uh, the people called Israel. God made promises to them. And specifically here, we're going to find five 
covenants, four are unconditional and one is not. Unconditional. In that God's fulfillment of his promises, they do not depend upon Israel. So four of the covenants are unconditional, one is not. And the first unconditional covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Let's read here uh, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And did you notice the little verb phrase, I will, in this passage? It's there five times. I will show you. I will make you. I will bless you. I will bless. I will curse. I will, I will, I will, I will. I will. This isn't some kind of agreement between God and Abram. This is an unconditional and sovereign guarantee. I mean, God is is essentially saying here, this is what I will do. I will make you into a great nation, Israel. I will give you this land and I will bless you and make your name great, my chosen people. So you see land seed, blessing. And God promises land, the promised land, people through the seed of Abram, and that they shall be a blessing. Make sure you note here verse 3. Verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. We would do well to remember this today, yes? It is a promise given by a sovereign who has all authority and power. Look over at chapter 13 here as we see this land portion of the covenant promise expand. Uh, Chapter 13, 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For All the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Forever. So I promise you land toward the north and the south and the east and the west. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants permanently. Again, this is not an agreement between two parties. This is simply a promise from creator God to Abram. And in chapter 15, God executes the covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promises Abraham, and that's his name that he's given in chapter 17, which means uh, father of a multitude. Abraham is promised land, seed, and blessing. Which brings us to the next covenant, and the land promise is developed even further in what is called the Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant. Now, I I got to tell you, I have two problems with this man-made name here. First, 
a little homework on this, and I found that it was given by a Roman emperor for the purpose of erasing any Jewish remembrance of the promise. And second here, while it involves the Middle Eastern region that has uh, often over the years been generally called Palestine, and I get that, it is the land promised to Israel. It's the land promised to Israel. So in the present day, I would make the case that we should be calling it, and some do, call it the land covenant. The land covenant. Well, you look with me at Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30 contain many of the details of this covenant. Now, we're not going to unpack all of that, and I'll, I'll ease your minds already. We are not going to unpack every single covenant in great length and detail this morning. We have two messages. I have one today to get through, really, to walk through the past of Israel. There's so much we could cover here, but I want you to see this. This is important. So it's chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. And this promise is important because it reaffirms Israel's title deed to the land. Look at verse 5. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So you see, Israel and her land, they're inseparable. Anytime a uh, dispersion from the land occurs in Israel's history, it will be reversed by a restoration to the land, to the land that is originally given to the 12 tribes. You can see from that map there, it is these 12 tribes of Israel that are fused together as the nation known as Israel. And so to review, uh, any disobedience on Israel's part or even dispersion uh, in, in its past does not negate these promises. Promises of land, promises of seed, and promises of blessing. No matter where you land on the timeline of Israel's past, these promises, they still hold true. Which brings us to the next promise, really the, the next covenant here. And this is the Davidic covenant the Davidic covenant. It is the third unconditional covenant primarily found in 2 Samuel 7 that we find the promise of a Messiah, a son of David, capital S, a a king in the line of David, capital K, who will ultimately rule over a nation to be preserved for all time. Israel. The Davidic covenant is also of vital importance as it relates to the promises to Israel. It's unconditional. It has both first and second coming implications concerning Christ. And it's consistently referencing one nation, past, present, future, and that is the nation of Israel. But there is a problem. The problem is this, that the hearts and the minds of the Jews, they still need to be changed. I mean, after all, what... What good would these promises be without their love for God and a desire to obey him? Sonny read for us this morning from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, in which we find the new covenant as promised to Israel. It is in this text that Israel is guaranteed a converted heart. It is a, a salvific covenant made in grace, having to do with uh, regeneration forgiveness, justification of Israel based on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and certainly the blood of the Messiah. 
Now, I know I'm moving through these quickly. Our emphasis is on the first two, but I want you to see that each of these unconditional covenants, they are important. They're an important part of Israel's past, and they also speak to its present and future times. So some of you may have wondered where the Mosaic covenant lands under these promises, the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the the law God gave to Israel through Moses to govern the conduct of Israel in the promised land. This was not given to the Gentiles and it was not given to the church. Still in Deuteronomy, if you just turn a few pages back here, Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4. And you see in verses uh, 7 and 8 here, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it reads, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and, and judgments as righteous as this whole law, that's the Mosaic law, which I am setting before you today? The Mosaic Law, 613 commandments in which the Ten Commandments are a summation of them that when obeyed would lead to spiritual and material prosperity. And when disobeyed would result in judgment, including the removal from the land and dispersion through various nations such as, you know, the uh, Assyrians uh, or Egypt and Babylon. This is a conditional covenant in which we find Israel often in the Old Testament breaking. You know this, right? Because you, you've read through the Old Testament and you see these instances with Israel and you go, oh, here they go again. Here they go again. And you see that they are disobeying. And we find Israel twisting the law into a form of works, righteousness, salvation, as well as they overemphasize external rituals of the law at the expense of a heart of love. And that is why we have the new covenant. Since Israel broke the Mosaic covenant, God promised that it would be superseded by a better new covenant. Oh, so much we could cover here with regards to the uh, implications of both the Mosaic and new covenants for us today. But that's not our laser focus, right? It is Israel. It's uh, Israelology. So let's stay the course. With the promises as our guide, we have ever so briefly looked at past Israel. Israel is an elected nation and a chosen people from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have been given unconditional land, seed, and blessing promises, even though they chose not to obey, not to be holy and represent God among the nations. And it is through this people that the Messiah would come as well as salvation would be offered. Again, the big picture from past Israel to present Israel. Present Israel. When I look at Israel today, present Israel, there is a part of me that identifies with the nation, that identifies with the people of Israel. Uh, Some of you know this. I am half Russian Jew, an ethnic Jew. And perhaps it's why maybe I'm uh, so fascinated in some ways with D-Day. When I think of what took place on D-Day, and this is on a humanistic level, I know God is sovereign in all of it and his amazing grace through it. But I, I, I look at that and I recognize, and I wonder if I'd be standing before you today. 
I wonder what the world would look like if there weren't 16, 17, and 18-year-olds who were fighting their way to storm the beaches of Normandy. You know what I'm talking about, right? And we have the American flag uh, hanging off of our front porch, and, and I will say to you that, yes, I, I am thankful to be an American, and, and I, am, I am passionate about that, and especially on a weekend when we can recognize our veterans, and we do thank you, veterans, for your service. Uh, it is, it is uh, difficult for me to say it this way, but I think you'll know what I'm saying. If I could hang a second flag, if I could, if I had the American flag, and there was a second flag that I would hang on the porch, it would be Israel. Uh, we stand with them. Our home stands with Israel. It's, it's part of my heritage. Uh, it's not just biblical. I see uh, my, my own line as a Russian Jew uh, wanting to the desire to support Israel. But with all of that said, we need to talk about Israel's disobedience. We need to talk about Israel's disobedience to God. In the 21st century, we biblically recognize that Israel is still, in fact, God's chosen nation and people. Uh, those are unconditional promises with blessings. However, the, the call to be holy and, and represent God among the nations has fallen on deaf ears. Uh, Israel was to show the nations the greatness of God by obeying the Mosaic Covenant, but instead of being a blessing to the nations, they became enslaved to the nations they were to be a light to. And from their history, we can see that when Israel is faithful, he is blessed. He blesses, I'm sorry. And when they are unfaithful, he, God, disciplines. And it's only by repenting that God forgives and begins to bless again. What a picture, same picture that we have of new life in Christ, right? And sadly, Israel continues to be disobedient to God. You don't need to turn there, but Deuteronomy 9, among many other scriptures, calls uh, Israel stiff-necked and uh, rebellious because their greatest failure is one of unbelief. Unbelief. Yes, for centuries, Israel has broken the law with, with sin, with, with idolatry, and even a form of a religious ritualism. Even so, God keeps his promises. Nowhere in our Bibles does it state that Israel has forfeited all of its privileges, forfeited all those things that God declared in the covenants that he would give to them in the future. So to be clear here, Israel has not forfeited those promises by disobeying the Mosaic covenant. Remember, the other covenants are um, unconditional. They are not dependent upon Israel. But again, we do Recognize that today, presently, Israel is not the light of God. Not the light of God. Spiritually speaking, 74% of the population in Israel is Jewish in their beliefs. And there's only 2% that are identifying as Christian. And Judaism, for the Jew, emphasizes something called orthopraxy, which is the right practice, over orthodoxy, which is the right belief. It is a religion of deed, not creed. It is works-based, where the, the focus is more on efforts to belong to the Jewish people, to uh, adhere to uh, the Jewish law than to what one believes. And so for the practicing Jew, generally speaking here, any 
scriptural interpretation is usually left to the rabbi. In fact, I would say that the vast majority of Jews would likely identify in some way as secular in their beliefs. Even the very orthodox who go to religious school to to study Judaism uh, spend more of their time studying Jewish legal discussions, not the scriptures that those discussions are based on. And I believe this is why there is some confusion over what it means to be Jewish. You know, when I've stated to someone, well, I'm Jewish, there's confusion there because they are not understanding that I'm talking about being an ethnic Jew. Perhaps they're thinking maybe he's uh, spiritually in some manner a Jew, a practicing Jew. And, And here's really a simple definition of what a Jew is. A Jew is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's an ethnic Jew. That's what it means to be a Jew. The the implication of this definition is that no matter what a Jew does, he or she can never become a non-Jew. No matter what a Jew believes or disbelieves, that person is a Jew. And likewise, a Gentile is anyone who is not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the implication is the same. You can be an atheist, you can be agnostic, a Buddhist, Christian, no matter, that person is still a Gentile. Let me take it one step further. A Hebrew Christian, or what the term that's used most often today, a Messianic Jew, is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a Jew, who professes to believe by faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So by faith, a Messianic Jew would align themselves with other believers in Jesus. But nationally, today, they would likely still identify themselves with the Jewish people and perhaps even Israel. Clear as mud? Today, uh, secondly, in present Israel, we see Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Israel's rejection of the Messiah. You know, the Jewish leaders had led the nation to reject the Messiahship of Jesus. We could spend a good many Sundays looking at past generations of Jews in the Old and even the New Testaments rejecting their Messiah. Matthew 3, you have John the Baptist is the Lord's forerunner. He, he appears on the scene, and what is he doing? He's calling for repentance. Repentance. Matthew 12, 12, Jesus performs a, a number of miracles, including casting out a demon, And some of the Jews are prompted to ask the question, could Jesus really be the Messiah? And then you have in John 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, we find the Sanhedrin formally casting a verdict, rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus. And as you know, the gospel accounts are replete with these kinds of rejections. Again and again, God demonstrates grace by calling the Jews to repentance. But Since Israel is sinful and unable to save itself, what does God do? He promises a coming representation, a representative of Israel, Jesus the Jew. And this Israelite offers salvation and restoration to Israel. He is the the servant of the Lord. He's the suffering servant who will ultimately save Israel and restore this nation, but not today. At this present moment, Israel continues to reject the Messiah, which brings with it 
consequences. Number three, Israel's consequences for this. You may ask, what exactly is uh, Israel uh, facing as the consequences to the rejection of the Messiah? If you would turn to Luke 19. Luke 19, please. This will be one of our last passages. Luke 19. Israel has been disobedient. Israel is rejecting its own Messiah. And there are consequences for this. If you look at Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. Speaking of Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And then look at chapter 21. Chapter 1, verse 20, 21, verse 24. 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There are consequences for this, and specifically as we have seen dispersion and persecution. Dispersion and persecution. The passages passages we just read, they pronounce a time for Jerusalem and all of Israel in which dispersion and persecution will become a way of life. Now directly, the events that would happen were just a generation away. In AD 70, the Roman army laid siege, the Roman army laid siege to Jerusalem. They destroyed the, the temple, they slaughtered thousands of Jewish people. But those days would only be the beginning for what we now have as present-day Israel. They continue to have enemies, as Luke wrote, surround and hem them in on every side. You know, admittedly. The horrific events that began on October 7th were a surprise. I don't know why they should have been, based on what we know biblically. And the reaction of many in our nation with the uh, protests that, in effect, endorse terrorism and a politician's call in Congress for genocide with the phrase, from the river to the sea. We know what that means. We know what that means. Well, it hit me like a sucker punch. I mean, it took the wind out of me, knocked it right out. And perhaps it's because I I didn't want to accept how a blind society can be so evil. I mean, I recognize that there are many who don't see what we see, but so evil. Holocaust uh, survivor Ellie uh, Faisal once said it this way, I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality always helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, 
never the tormented. She's right. She's right. Paralysis is not an option in the face of evil. Look, if you think the Jew can be destroyed, then you need to go back and reread Jeremiah 31 this afternoon. As we'll see next week, the Jew is the key to all biblical prophecy. And yet, and yet, Israel is currently experiencing a period of temporary and partial hardening. As God saves many Gentiles. And if you're still with me, turn to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, 11.25. Romans 11.25. Paul says, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, beware of boasting of spiritual pride, Gentiles. God's not done with Israel. And he goes on that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until when? A specific point in time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the completed number of elect Gentiles has come to salvation. Israel's unbelief will be reversed. The Jewish people will one day embrace their king in saving faith. But in the meantime, a remnant of Jewish, uh, of Hebrew Christians, believing Israelites, exist to testify of God's continued faithfulness to Israel and serve as a reminder that the nation as a whole will be saved. Now, if we could uh, end here, we'd cut the sermon right here like link sausage and just pick up uh, back up next week and look at what is to come, the end times. But I would like to leave you with a challenge today as it relates to Israel. If you would look with me at three verses uh, that are all too easy to miss in a tremendous chapter, Romans 15. If you look at Romans 15, this is it for this morning. Verses 25 to 27. Romans 15, 25 to 27. As we live in this time of the Gentiles, it is wise for the believer to ask, What is our obligation to Israel? Number four, our obligation to Israel. Beginning in verse 25 of uh, chapter 15. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul had, he had ministered in these areas during his first and second missionary journeys. And he says, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, gospel truths, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Paul is uh, teaching Gentile gratitude to the Jews. You know, on a, on a human level, all Gentile Christians actually owe their, sal- their spiritual lives to to um, Jewish apostles, to Jewish prophets and teachers who first proclaimed the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it was his desire to see this wall between the Gentiles and the Jews to come down. 
He said, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, gospel truths, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Gentiles are in debt to the Jews, paid by ministering to them. The fact that Gentile believers have become partakers uh, of Jewish spiritual blessings, it places an obligation on Gentile believers. They have become partakers of Jewish spiritual blessings, uh, mediated through many of the Jewish covenants promising blessings that we walked through earlier. And, and the way Paul states that they can pay their indebtedness to the Jews, according to this verse, is to minister to them. I mean, that is Jewish believers in material things. And this is true for the local believer as well as the local assembly. I mean, corporately, let me, let me tell you that our church, uh, part of its monthly mission support does just that. I mean, we, we support directly uh, the Master's Training Academy. And the Master's Training Academy has a member school in the Middle East, secret location, uh, as far as being public about that, uh, seeking to train gifted leaders to minister and perhaps even to plant solid churches in that region. You can learn more about that agency at tmai.org, tmai.org, the Master's Training Academy. You can also hit our website. And, and some of you have asked about uh, even Samaritan's Purse with uh, Franklin Graham. And at this time, uh, there is no access to Gaza. It's simply not possible. The border is understandably uh, sealed. But if and when we learn of an opportunity, yeah, we'll get you word. I mean, personally, I'm watching for it. So there may be an opportunity road. Now, the context of the verses we just read here is primarily towards uh, Jewish believers, but I would also argue a related responsibility exists towards unbelieving Jews as well. I mean, we must never lose sight of the priority of Jewish evangelism. God has his remnant. And we should seek to be found faithful in reaching people who are of Israel for Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because he's not done with them yet. He's not done with Israel yet. You've got to come back next Sunday to see why and how he is not done with them. Well, we know why, because he is God and he has promised to. But we'll learn what is in store prophetically here, looking ahead for Israel, uh, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, what that really means. You know, what's at stake here is not just the future of Israel, but it's our very confidence in the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you this morning for your unfailing promises. You continually, you, you keep your promises, not just to Israel, but to us as well. And so may the, may the truths that we examine concerning your sovereign election of Israel, may it fuel our desires to be found faithful, uh, faithful in our walk with you. Thank you that your promises are unconditional for both the Jew and the Gentile. Thank you uh, that they do not depend upon our sinfulness as we are not in very good shape. 
May all of this, the historic proof of how you have dealt and will deal with Israel, help us to also understand uh, a little bit more uh, the wonderful grace of God, the grace of God. Thank you, Father. As we're about to sing, when we are stayed up on Jehovah, our hearts are fully blessed, finding, as you promised, perfect peace and rest. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.